good morning. And um, hey, I want to I I give a couple of shout outs because uh, just so many uh, good things happening around us. And, and uh, the Kids D Now happened this weekend. And last weekend was our student ministry Cornelia weekend. Those weekends, those, those events don't get a lot of airplay necessarily from this spot or on Sunday mornings very often. We do so much registration and communication directly to parents and that kind of thing. And I just want to give that, they're going to hate this, but I want to shout out to David, who's our, uh, who's our family ministries pastor and does student ministry with us, and Jeannie Nation, our children's minister. They do a stellar work day in and day out, and uh, those weekends were great. And uh, yeah, if you've got... If you've got children or students, then, then you know that those are two quality people. And I'm, I'm grateful to call them friends and coworkers. I, I, I'm, I'm just thankful to the Lord for them and for our church. It's an awesome thing to come here on Sunday morning and gather together with one another. So I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity to do that. Hey, if we've not met, my name is Brian, and I'm the lead pastor here at Foothills. Let's open the Bible this morning to Acts chapter 17. It's on page 926. If you're using the Bible there in the pew, every Sunday we ask you to open the Bible. And that's not unusual, right? It's probably to be expected in a church on a Sunday morning. But there can be significant differences between churches in how they approach the Bible, how they look at the Bible, the way they understand the Bible. We've been in a study in the book of Acts, if you're new with us, and today we're in chapter 17, the first 15 verses, and we're going to see some things in these verses that we have been seeing along the way. There's going to be a lot here that is not new for us, but I think that there is one thing in particular Luke wants us to zero in on, and that's what I'm going to do today. I believe there's something here through the example of Paul that he teaches us, he shows us how to approach the Bible, how to think about the Bible, and how to read the Bible, how to engage with the Bible. And so the title of the sermon today is Giving and Receiving the Scriptures. And as we talk about that, I'm going to give you three big headings. How we've been taught to read the Bible, how we should read the Bible, and why we should read the Bible. And so we're going to see that as we walk through the text this morning, all right? And so in order to do that, I'm going to walk us through those 15 verses first, and then we're going to go through those three headings at the, at the end, all right? So let's pray one more time and ask God to help us in the process. And so, Father, we thank you that we can come again and gather in your name, in the name of Jesus. We do want to exalt him. We believe that he's king, that he is our savior, and that he's given his life for us. And we believe the Bible teaches us that. Father, this morning as we open your word, we stand upon it. We believe in the authority of the scriptures. And Father, we pray that uh, the words of my mouth would be your words. It wouldn't be my opinion or any ideas, but truly we would see from the text what you have to say to us. Father, we pray that you would teach us by your spirit this morning. Open hearts, cause us to pay attention to what you have for us this morning. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so let's look at Acts 17, verse 1. Let's look at it together. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And so remember where we have been. We were in Philippi last week, and there's a map. That should be, let's put that map up on the screen. And so they were in Philippi at the top of the map there. And now they're going about 100 miles through those other two cities down to Thessalonica. Look at verses 2 and 3. 
And Paul went in, and was, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, that's a new marker for us. We haven't seen Luke give us a marker like that. On three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And so we've seen Paul in the synagogue before, but what Luke is calling our attention to is the way in which Paul gives them the scriptures. It says he reasoned with them. He was explaining and proving from the scriptures that it was necessary for God's Messiah to suffer and to rise from the dead and that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. So look at verses 4 and 5. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, They formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And so all of that sounds familiar to us. After three Sabbaths of teaching, some people were persuaded to believe in Christ. Some people were provoked to jealousy. A mob forms. They want Paul out of the city. Verse 6, and when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying, there is another king, Jesus. The people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. And so the mob blames Paul and his team for turning the world upside down. We saw that last week in Philippi, how the gospel disrupts lives. It disrupts our lives individually. It disrupts entire societies. And so we see that. Paul declares that Jesus is Lord. And now there are some new believers running around Thessalonica. They're saying the same thing. Jesus is Lord. And there are some people who are jealous for their own religion, the Jews. And now they're provoked because they're thinking, do these guys want to overthrow the Caesar? Are they insurrectionists are they rebels they accuse them of that but it's it's really a trumped up charge they're innocent of that charge nobody is trying to overthrow rome they're declaring that jesus is lord and we we've seen innocent men charged with false charges before jesus was an innocent man he was charged with crimes that he didn't commit in the presence of an unruly crowd whipped up by the Jewish authorities. This scene sounds very much like what happened to Jesus. If you were to look at Luke chapter 23, you would find that Luke wrote that the crowd there shouted to the authorities, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us giving tribute to Caesar, saying he himself is Christ, a king. So it sounds very familiar. In other words, what Jesus promised that his disciples would encounter, and that is opposition, just as he did, They would, and we see it once again right here in this text. We've seen this before. Now look at verses 10 through 13. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. And now these Jews are more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. When the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul and Berea, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. And so Paul and Silas are stolen out of the city of Thessalonica, as it were, by night, and they go to Berea. They go about another 50 miles to the south, 
and they enter the synagogue. We've seen this before. They're giving the scriptures away, and now we see some people also receiving the scriptures differently than what happened in Thessalonica. Now it's the same in that some people have received it, but here they're receiving it in a bit of a different way. These, these Jews are more noble than the people in Thessalonica. Uh, it made me wonder, did the people in Thessalonica ever read these verses and think, what? <laughs> what are you talking about more noble than us, you know? And what does it mean exactly to be more noble? It actually, the, the characterization is really kind of true, more of noble birth. They, they, they just seemed more reasonable than those people in Thessalonica. When I looked at the word and thought about it, I thought, you know, these people were teachable. That was the posture that they had. They were teachable. They're not gullible. It's not that they were believing anything that came down the road. But they were teachable, and they examined these things. They searched the scriptures daily, it says here, to see if these things were so. That was their way of receiving the gospel. And, and when they did that, many of them believed, it says. Now, the opposition in Berea wasn't homegrown like it was in Thessalonica. It was imported. Those people from Thessalonica travel those 50 miles to stir up trouble. Look at verse 14. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. I don't know, maybe Silas and Timothy were able to stay in Berea for a pe period of time because the opposition went home to Thessalonica. Uh, either way, Paul is now off to Athens, and it's a whole new kind of context for ministry that he's entered into, and we're going to see that next week. But this text is clearly about the giving and receiving of the scriptures. It's clearly about how Paul did that. And I believe that Luke wants us to see in Paul's example how we ought to engage with the Bible. Paul was an apostle of Christ. He's giving the gospel away. And so it, it behooves us to pay attention to what he did here. Now, how have we learned to read the Bible? That's our first big heading. How have we learned to read the Bible? I think there are three basic ways that we have all learned to read the Bible. We've learned to read the Bible as an instruction manual for life. Have you ever heard the, uh, the saying, it's old, I heard it in the 70s, I think. The Bible is basic instruction before leaving earth. B-I-B-L-E. All the kids in the room are going to remember that, all right? That's what it is. And the Bible certainly has instruction for how to live your life. That's in the Bible. But how many of you have instruction manuals at, at home? You probably all have some. They're in a drawer somewhere or in a box. How often do you read them? Never. <laughs> kind of like me. If you're like me, you get a new gadget, you get a new appliance, you read the instruction manual, and you put it in a drawer. You say, I got this. And the next time you look for that manual is when something breaks. And if you look at your Bible as if it were just an instruction manual for life, you're probably not going to pick it up very often, or at least not until something breaks. Something breaks in your marriage. Something breaks at work. Something breaks with your health. Something breaks with your children. And suddenly, you're scrambling to find the answer. But there is more to the Bible than just instruction for life. Some of us have learned to read the Bible like chicken soup for the soul. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands because I don't want to embarrass anyone. But we've all heard of those books. I could ask, have you ever eaten at Cracker Barrel? Because you know what I'm talking about. That's where they sell most of them, I think. Uh, chicken soup for the soul. They're inspirational, heartwarming kinds of books, right? There's actually, I thought those books must have 
you know, died a long time ago. They did not. A new one was published this month. The title is Believe in Miracles, 101 Stories of Hope, Answered Prayers, and Divine Intervention. And here I thought that's what the Bible was. Stories of divine intervention and hope and prayers and answered prayers. We can get all of that in the Bible. One person actually left a review of that new copy of Chicken Soup for the Soul. They wrote, wow, I am using this book as a daily devotional. And I add my wow to that review. That's, that's kind of amazing. The Bible is full of hope. The Bible is full of divine intervention. It is full of people's prayers being answered by God. But if we expect the Bible to simply be like chicken soup for the soul, then how are we going to treat it? We're probably going to avoid all those parts that are meant to rebuke us and convict us, that are meant to challenge our thinking and our attitudes, our words, our emotions, that are meant to call us to obedience. We're not going to be very keen to get into those parts of the Bible. Some of us have been taught to read the Bible as literature, as literature. Uh, if you're a student, you may have taken that course at ASU or Arizona or NAU or some other school. C.S. Lewis was a British professor of English lit at Oxford and Cambridge, so we can say he's probably pretty safe. He knew something about literature, right? And he wrote this about the Bible. There is a sense in which the Bible, since it is, after all, literature, cannot properly be read except as literature, and the different parts of it as the different sorts of literature they are. And he's right. The Bible is full of all kinds of literature, different genres of literature, right? There's history. That's what we're in right now with Acts. There's prophecy. There's apocalyptic literature in Daniel and Revelation. There, there's uh, poetry. There's law. There's lots of different kinds of genres in the Bible. But God uses all those different genres to tell us the truth about ultimate reality. And so you may find yourself, like I do at times, struggling with parts of the Bible because of the genre. Uh, let me tell you, when it came to English lit class, I hated it when we opened the poets. And I'm a musically inclined person, but for whatever reason, I had to work twice as hard to even have a chance against some of those others who seem to be wired to understand it. The Bible is written in all these different genres. God is a, a creative God, right? He's got all this variety for us. But the Bible is more than just good literature. It is that. But it's much more than that. It's good literature that teaches us the ultimate reality of truth. Reading the Bible as an instruction manual for life, as chicken soup for the soul, as just good literature, those, things, those approaches are okay, but they're not enough. They miss the deeper and more important points of the Bible. How should we read the Bible? We see it, I think, in the example of Paul here and what he does as he's in Thessalonica. And we see it in the response of those Bereans in Berea. Look at what it says in verses 2 and 3. It says, Paul reasoned with them from the Scriptures explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ, for the Messiah, to suffer and rise from the dead, and that Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, notice the plural. He reasoned with them from the Scriptures. In other words, the Bible that Paul taught from was the Old Testament. Paul didn't just pull out one chapter. He didn't just pull out one verse. He taught them from the Old Testament, from the Scriptures. In other words, he taught it in a way 
that demonstrated that the Bible is a collection of books that tells one coherent story, right, all the way through, from start to finish, from beginning to end. So how should we read the Bible? I mean, we're New Testament believers, some people would say. We have the Bible altogether. We have the Old Testament and now the New Testament. How should we read the Bible? I'm going to say to you this morning that we should read the Bible as Jesus did, as Paul does here, as a collection of 66 books that tells one coherent story from beginning to end. That's how we should approach the Bible. I want us to talk about that for a couple of minutes, right? If you walk into a movie 10 or 15 minutes late, it's hard to find your place, isn't it? It's like, what's, what's happening here? The middle doesn't make sense if you don't know where it came from. And you don't have any good sense of where the story is going if you weren't there at the beginning. If you open your Bible to Exodus or to 2 Kings or maybe to Malachi, maybe you read that book and you feel like, I've got a handle on this book. I think I really understand what it's saying. Do you really? I would say to you that unless you understand what came before that book and what comes after it, you're liable and you're very likely to miss the ultimate point of even that book because the Bible is a collection of 66 books that tells a coherent story from beginning to end. They all fall together. They depend on one another. When we study through the book of Acts, we ought to regularly reference the fact that Luke wrote it, that he's depending on the material from his gospel to inform what we see and what we see the apostles preaching and declaring. It all comes from there, and it's headed somewhere. When we get into New Testament epistles, where did those churches come from? We're seeing them spring to life before us right here in the book of Acts. The story hangs together, and it's going someplace. If I were to give you a broad outline for the plot line about how the Bible would break out, you, you could do it this way. Genesis 1 through 11 is the introduction of the Bible. If you get Genesis 1 through 11 under your feet, it's like a foundation. And much of what you will study and learn and read about in the rest of the Bible, you find in those first 11 chapters. Know those 11 chapters. From there, chapter 12 of Genesis, I would say, people, we can talk about this for a long time, I would say all the way through the book of Jude is like the body of the story. It's the body of Scripture. That's where you see the plot line really coming to life and filling out and all of these subplots coming to starting to happen. You see all of these characters coming to life and all of these different lines of thought, but constantly, continually, over and over, there is this drumbeat that the story is headed in a certain direction. And then we see the culmination of it, the conclusion of it, in the book of Revelation. The Bible begins in creation in Genesis chapter 1 with God creating from nothing everything that is and it is all good and there is a garden. And you come to the end of the scriptures and the garden city is there. In between, we see sin and brokenness ravage all that God has created, but we also see God make promises that he will rescue and redeem and restore. And where does the story end up? With everything made new. The Bible is a collection of 66 books. It tells one story from start to finish. I wonder if you could guess the book that this plot line comes from. Let me give you a plot line. See if you can guess the book that it comes from. A young girl hates her ordinary circumstances. She discovers on an extraordinary journey that there really is no place like home. You're so smart. 
so early on a Sunday? The Wizard of Oz, right? Yeah. There's a plot line to that. If you drop into the Wizard of Oz 15 minutes on into the movie, you're going to be lost. You're going to want to know, what is this all about? Why is this girl compelled, you know, and what's, what's happening? Paul is reasoning, explaining, and proving to these people from the scriptures that the Bible has a plot, and it points to Jesus. And Jesus taught the Bible this way as well. You get to the end of Luke's gospel, chapter 24, Jesus has encounters with two subsets of his disciples, as it were, and he says this to first group, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter his glory? And later in that same chapter, he says to his disciples, everything written about me in the law of Moses, in the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. For the Jews, when they thought about the Old Testament scripture, those were the three divisions, the Tanakh, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the writings, the the Psalms. And Jesus is saying, that story points to me. It's about me. How should you read the Bible? You should read the Bible as Jesus did, as Paul does here, as one coherent story from beginning to end that points us to Jesus. You'll notice right in this text that there's no effort to coerce anybody to believe. This is really about persuasion. And I love that about the Christian faith. We're not coercing people to faith in Christ, but we do want to persuade people to believe. And if you're not a Christian, if you wouldn't refer to yourself as a Christian, but you're here, I would, I'm so glad that you're here. We're glad that you're here. We want you to keep coming. We hope that you will, that you'll keep reading the Bible and listening, that you'll keep studying, keep asking your questions. The last thing we would want you to do is check your brains at the door. In fact, please bring your brains with you. In other words, be like these Bereans. Be like these Bereans. Be a person who's teachable. Say, I'm going to give this the benefit of the doubt. I'm going to be teachable. I'm going to be open. And as I read the Bible, I'm going to test it, and I'm going to ask questions, and I'm going to examine it, and I'm going to see if these things are so. I'd encourage you to do just that. This text is not the substance of what Paul taught in those three Sabbaths. It's a summary of his approach to the Bible and how he taught the people in those synagogues and how they received it. But what did he say? when he was in the synagogue. What might he have said? I I thought I'd take a stab at it. What might Paul have preached when he was there? I think he could have opened with something like, brothers, we know that God is the creator of all things. And when he made the world and the universe, it was all good, and he created Adam and Eve. And he said it was very good, but Adam and Eve turned their backs on God. They did not trust him, and they ate of that forbidden fruit, and they placed themselves in all of creation under the curse of sin and death, and all of us now live under that curse of sin and death. But God promised Eve that she would have an offspring who would crush the head of that tempting serpent, and he would deliver us from that curse. But in the process, he would be bruised. Eventually, though, sin made a wreck of the world, It all went bad. God chose to start over. He sent a flood. He rescued that offspring through Noah. And then along the way, God called another man from a distant place, Abraham, and he promised him an offspring who would be a blessing to the nations. And over time, one of Abraham's sons, Jacob, was blessing his sons. And when he came came to Judah, God said to him, God just said to him, the scepter will not depart from your house. What does that mean other than a king would come 
from Judah, from the line of Judah. And God's people then spent 400 years in slavery, in captivity, but God delivered them out of that into a land that he had promised them. He preserved their offspring. And in Deuteronomy, God spoke through Moses to the people and he said, I'm going to send a prophet greater than Moses. You must listen to him. But the story of the Bible tells us that they didn't listen to God. They fell into a terrible cycle of sin and judgment and rescue. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes, and they came to the place where they said, God, just give us a king. We want to be like all of these other nations. And God warned them about human kings, but they, they wanted it, and so God said, I'll give you a king. And he gave them king, and Saul did not last long, but then he gave them David. And David was a great king, and David said, God, I want to build you a house. But God said, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to make you a kingdom and your descendant is going to sit on the throne of my people forever. But God's people split. They split into two nations, the northern kingdom and then the southern kingdom. And that kingly line seemed to start to fall apart, come apart. And the people sinned against God. And God judged them. And he sent them one kingdom at a time, Israel and Judah, into captivity. And over generations, some of them were able to make their way back, to return to the land, to begin to rebuild their lives. But when you get to the end of the Old Testament, it's dark because there's no son of David sitting on the throne, ruling over the people of God in righteousness. And I can imagine that Paul would have pointed those people in the synagogues back to maybe the most hopeful book in the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah. And he would have said, do you remember Isaiah talking about God's servant, the one who would come and would be a light to the coastlands all the way out to the nations and who would rescue the people who would be God's servant truly, but who would also suffer. The servant would suffer. They would carry our griefs and our sorrows. They would be pierced for our iniquities and crushed for our transgressions. And, and the punishment that brings us peace would be on him. And by his wounds, we would be healed. And I think he would have maybe said, and what was David talking about? Who was he talking about when he said, your holy one will not see decay? He couldn't have been talking about himself. David is dead and buried a long time ago. I think Paul would have said that holy one David spoke of in the Psalms is the servant of, the, of God, the suffering servant that Isaiah spoke about. They are one and the same. And that holy one, that suffering servant would come and pay for our sins. He would die and yet he would live forever and he would rule forever. And then maybe he points them to that little prophet buried over there at the end of your Old Testament, Micah, who said, oh, you of Bethlehem, too little to be numbered among the clans of Judah, from you will come a ruler for my people, Israel. From you will come a shepherd for my people. And through all of that, with all of the scriptures from Genesis to Malachi in the Old Testament, Paul reasons and explains and he proves why it was necessary for God's Messiah to suffer and then rise from the dead to, to pay for our sins and to defeat sin and death and the evil one to fulfill the promise that God spoke through David that the Holy One would not see decay. And then he would point, I think, to Bethlehem, the birthplace of Jesus, and then to Jerusalem where he was arrested and tried and crucified and buried and rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father 
father and he said, the Messiah is Jesus. He is the promised offspring of Eve. He crushed the head of the serpent. He is the offspring, the descendant of Abraham. He's a light to the nations. He is the descendant of King David. He has the right to sit on the throne and he will rule forever. He will come again from heaven and establish his kingdom and there will be no end. Today is the day for you to turn from your sins, from all of your self-effort and trust in God's Messiah, Jesus How should we read the Bible? We should read it as Jesus did. We should read it as Paul does here, as the example that he gives to us. It is a collection of 66 books. It tells one coherent story from start to finish, pointing to all that God has done in Jesus to glorify himself and to redeem a people for himself. But why should we read the Bible? Final heading. We should read the Bible because it points us to Jesus. The Bible... The whole Bible is given to help us know Jesus, to love him, trust him, and obey him. That's why we have the Bible. Christianity is not primarily a set of rules. It's not primarily a moral code. It's primarily about communion with God through Christ. Christianity, the message of Christianity is all of us are made in the image of God, and we are made to know the holy God, the eternal God. And we are made to be reconciled to him through Christ. That's God's plan. So when we read the Bible, the Bible shows us Jesus. Paul and Silas preach. Some believe. Some protest. They stir up crowds. We've seen all of that through Acts ever since very early on. Lots of opposition to the preaching of the gospel. But the thing that jumps off the page in this text is that Paul connects the story of the Bible to the person of Jesus. He's saying if you read the Bible this way, not only will you see Jesus, if you submit to the Bible, you will become more like Jesus. Because if you don't, you're going to miss the whole intent, purpose for having the Bible. I I remember a little proverb. I don't know whether my mom had it hanging in the house or I saw it at a church. It was years ago, but this was it. When a child of God looks into the word of God and sees the son of God, he is changed by the spirit of God into the image of God, to the glory of God. That's a great little six-line summary of Christian discipleship. And do you see where it begins and ends? In the scriptures, with the Bible. The Bible is not just great literature. It's not just an instruction manual for life. It's not just chicken soup for the soul. We need to see the Bible in a new way, in a different way. I I hope today to change the way you see the Bible and the way in which you approach the Bible and understand the Bible so that you will pick it up and see it for all that it is, that it is the God-breathed story of all that God has done in the world and will do through Christ for our good and his glory. And if you are not yet a believer today, I hope that this sermon will help you connect some of the dots and that you will at least, like those Bereans, come with a teachable heart, laying aside any presumptions that you might have, and be willing to learn. Ask your questions, read and listen, and see if this is not the revelation from God about the Christ, the Savior, the one who delivers us from sin. And if you wouldn't, soon come to trust him as your Savior. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. 
Lord, we don't worship the Bible. We worship you. (laughs) You are the Lord of creation, the Lord of hosts. God Almighty, the one who created everything, the one who will make all things new. You set, you set the plan of redemption into, into motion. You sent your son into the world to pay the penalty for our sins, to lay down his life in our place, and to rise from the dead, to break the curse of sin and death and the evil one, and to offer to us freedom, eternal life, forgiveness, and righteousness that comes from you. And Father, we are grateful that your spirit inspired men to write these words, that they were carried along, Peter the apostle said, by your spirit to pen these words, and you kept them and you have preserved them generation after generation. We are grateful for the Bible. We can open it and read it, and we can hear you speak to us. We can know you as our Father in heaven. We can know our Savior, the Lord Jesus, as our elder brother in the faith, as it were, the one who's gone before us, who is our king. And we can be led by your spirit, taught by your spirit, reminded of the truth by your spirit. We are grateful for these things, God. You are glorious, and we worship you today. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for what we can learn. Help us to take it to heart and to engage it day by day so that we might become more like Jesus or so that some of us would come to trust in Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen.